Welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? I'm your host, Eric Bruton. Thank you for tuning into my podcast today. On this show, I invite some of the most important and exciting leaders in wealth management and fintech to discuss and debate the latest trends and hottest topics facing financial advisors today. So why should you listen to this show? Well, my goal is for you to learn one or two ideas that will help you run a better business and or become a stronger leader. These shows have been a blast to do, mostly because of the great guests and the interesting conversations we've had. You can follow Can You Hold My Attention on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Okay, so I like having sports figures on my podcast. I had the great Fran Tarkenton, Detlef Schrempf, and Chris Dudley. And most recently, I had Tara Vanderveer, the head women's basketball coach at Stanford University, who has the most wins in NCAA history. I invite these successful and influential sports figures on my program because I believe, being a former and college and pro athlete, that the lessons we learn in competitive sports directly impact our leadership skills, work ethic, and team focus in our professional careers. And given the correlations between the challenges and opportunities we face in sports and in the world of financial services and wealth management, there's so much we can learn from these sports leaders. Dave Butler is one such leader. He was a successful college and pro basketball player who went on to become the co-CEO of one of the largest mutual fund and ETF companies in the world, Dimensional Fund Advisors, or DFA. Dave has experienced nothing short of massive growth at DFA since he joined the company 26 years ago. The firm went from $10 billion in assets in 1995 to a whopping $650 billion today. In fact, many of the most successful advisors I've worked with in my career would claim that DFA and their strategic partnership with the Austin, Texas-based firm sits at the very foundation of their success. My connection and friendship with Dave goes back even further, maybe 35 years ago, to a pickup basketball game at Stanford. I've enjoyed following Dave's fantastic career, and I'm so happy to have him on the show today to talk about how he got into this business, how DFA has evolved over the years, and how he and his colleagues will support their financial advisors going forward. Dave, welcome to Can You Hold My Attention? Well, great to be here, Derek. Thanks so much. Well, Dave, I want to talk a little bit today about uh, Dimensional um, and what you guys are doing in the business and how you're adapting. I know you're doing a lot of things on the ETF side now or about to. And and uh, But before I get into that, just a little bit of your background, uh, because I know we, we've got some similarity in our backgrounds. And uh, then I want to talk about how you just got into this business before we talk about the, the machine, uh, which is which is dimensional today. Um, but first, let's let's talk about your background. And uh, I knew you, I know you grew up in Southern California. You uh, played some basketball. You went to that school across the bay that we don't often don't talk about. But uh, so tell me about growing up. Yeah, growing up was a uh, grew up in, in uh, Southern California and played basketball. I have three brothers, and you know one of them very well, Greg, who played with you at Stanford, and another 6'11 guy. So 
a lot of those types of guys running around. And, and uh, in my little neighborhood in Palos Verdes, uh, we ended up having a bunch of guys that were big uh, and pretty good basketball players. So, you know, Jay Billis, who is at ESPN, and he was a teammate of mine in high school. And then, a, you know, and it's funny, in the span of like three or four years, we had uh, six guys that were six, nine and up and all got drafted in the NBA. So, you know, no recruiting, no anything else. It just happened to be a, a, a bunch of players in the hill. And that was great growing up because we just we competed all day long and we played against each other. And oftentimes those games were better than any game that we end up subsequently going out to play in. So it was a great way to grow up, a great way to. Did, so didn't you start like, I, I think in high school, seven foot, six, 10 and six, 10. I mean, wasn't that part of your starting lineup? Yeah, our, our high school uh, lineup was bigger than my lineup at Cal my freshman year. So we were, we were six, uh, 10, uh, six, nine, six, nine on the front line. And we had two six sevens off the bench. So that was, and again, not not recruited. It was just uh, amazing for high school, right? Hopefully you yeah. had a good point guard to bring up the ball uh, to distribute to you guys. Yeah, we had a great, great point guard, a guy named Jimmy Denver. And Jimmy Denver's, uh, if you remember uh, Gilligan's Island, Bob Denver, Gilligan, that was his yeah. uncle. You can oh, imagine wow. Bob. Gilligan with the hat on, you know, running the point guard and then dishing it to, to Billis and I and my brother Greg. And we had, we had a heck of a lot of fun. Well, that that's great. So um, so you, I know you went to you went to Cal, had a great career there. Um, you got drafted by the Celtics and was it 87? Is that right? Uh, yes, 87. Yep. Yep. OK. Um, but but you did. How, did you play for the Celtics or I know you played overseas a bit? Yeah, it was, a, it was a very long story, but I the year I came out, they had a NBA player strike, which was the mm. first one they had in 30 or 40 years. So the story at the time was that the NBA was not going to play that season. And so we all got drafted. And actually, again, it goes back to Billis was around and Baker Brothers were around. And so we were all practicing in, in a gym in Palos Verdes. And the word came out that there was a strike. And I was in great shape. I was in the best shape I'd ever uh, been in. And I thought I'd have a great shot to make the Celtics. And um uh, the strike came down, and they said, "Nope, no, no uh, draft picks could go to a camp." So that meant I was at home, sitting around, thinking about what I was going to do next, uh, thinking there would be no NBA season. And a team from Istanbul, Turkey, called me and said, "You know, you like to come over and try out?" And of course, I had nothing to do. They were going to give me a couple thousand bucks in a hotel room, and I had never seen Istanbul, Turkey. So, right, you know, I was 22 years old. What the heck? And I had a great tryout, and they end up offering me about three times what I would have made as a rookie in the NBA. And so it wasn't really a monetary decision, but it was more of, you know, I can go over there, I can get better, work on my game, I'll make, you know, a good amount of money, and then I'm going to come back and make uh, the Celtics the following year. So I went over there and probably about halfway through the season, I think guess in January, I ended up uh, tearing up my my calf, my, uh, my gastroc in my calf. And um, being the only American on the team, of course, they want you to be on the floor. So I didn't properly rest and recover from that injury. And I was back in like, you know, probably five days for kind of some big league game that, that we had coming up. And I you know, just sort of stood there, kind of pump faked and try to shoot threes all the time. I don't think I drove, even though the guy probably thought I could drive. I couldn't I couldn't push off my foot. Right. Um, and it just it was it wasn't helpful for the healing process on that. So I came back from that and I came back at about 50 percent, had a chance to try out with the Clippers. Uh, but I didn't do that because my my leg was still hurting. And then a uh, a team from Japan had called up and said, "Hey, you can you know, come over to Japan," and they said you could only you only had to practice two days a week, and it was really you know pretty <laughs> mellow. So I thought, okay, I'll go over there, get my calf better, play in Japan, have some fun, make some money, and then I'll come back and make it. <laughs> right. Um, by that time, I just knew my my leg wasn't getting any better, 
And I had an opportunity to uh, go back and finish my MBA, which I had started my senior year or my last year at Cal. Uh, so I went back to school, thought I'd rehab, get, you know, get my MBA, finish that off and then go out and uh, go find another basketball job. So you can see, you see the trend. I mean, it was basketball wasn't really finished for me. And I thought I had something in the tank and I finished that up and I ended up going over to England uh, for a seat for a season. And about two weeks into it, I realized that this wasn't going to work. Uh, okay. My leg me and a, and a recruiter from Merrill Lynch called me up and said, Hey, I've got a, a job on the, uh, uh, on the, on the desk at Merrill in New York. Would you mind, you know, do you want to take it? And I just knew my basketball career was done at that point. So I, I said, yeah, I uh, got on a plane Sunday afternoon, got in New York Sunday night. My brother Greg was there, uh, borrowed a suit from him Sunday night. And I started my my financial services career Monday morning. Uh, so people always ask, how long did it take you to transition from sports to uh, to uh, to business life? And I say about about twelve hours. <laughs> but you know, people don't understand sometimes if you have that passion about basketball, which you know you, you certainly had. I had at one point in my career as well. You just can't you just can't exercise those demons, so to speak, from your system. You got to play them out, even if you have the injuries. And at some point, it, maybe it's the call from somebody at Merrill Lynch or something like that, where you just say, you know what, uh, maybe it's time to hang up the shoes and, and get going. So, so you you didn't really have, uh, I guess, an aha moment in your life where you just said, I want to be in financial services. It kind of came upon you. Yeah, you know, I, my dad was an accountant, and then I did undergrad. I did business school in, at undergrad at Cal, and then I started my MBA, as I mentioned, my fifth year when I was playing basketball at Cal. So I was a business person and I and I knew I wanted to be on the investment side uh, and I I thought that you know so I when I was finishing up the MBA I had I had um, interviewed with a number of Wall Street firms and in those days being on Wall Street was where you wanted to be uh, and then that's when that phone call came in uh, and so I just had to make the decision at that point that you know to your point you're a you're a basketball player you're everything else in your world is is kind of secondary so that's who you are so part of it is just giving up your your identity at that point, really, which, you know, you put 10 or 15 years into a sport and that's pretty much all you did, did and that was what you were good at. And then to say, hmm, you're, you're done. So it's kind of that, that retirement aspect that a lot of people face at 60 or 65, that athletes sometimes will face at 20 or 25 or 30. And then there's this whole shift in how you think about what you're going to do next and what your life's going to be about and, and where you're going to go. And as you know, when you're young and big and strong, it's hard to imagine that there's some kind of end uh, of, of the rainbow that you wouldn't be able to utilize those those uh, talents or those gifts or whatever it might be. And then it, it happens and it happens for everybody. And the great athletes, it happens at 35 or 40, you know, the so-so the better athletes happen at 25 or so. And then, you know, some people it happens in high school, but uh, at, at some point, everybody's got to make that transition and move into something else and kind of shift the mindset around what you're, what you're going to do and, and, and what you want to be impactful in. And that was kind of a moment for me. Well, I, well, I told my brother the other night I was going to be on the show and, and I said, you know, the one thing I do remember about Derek was that at a scrimmage down at Stanford, I remember you, I think you broke my nose. I'm, I'm not sure if it was actually broken <laughs> you and, and my brother and somebody else, you guys were all these giant guys. And if you went inside, you're pretty much going to get a, a good elbow in the face at some point. And that's, uh, I think that's what you, what you did to me. So the, the nose, if it looks a little crooked, you know, it's, it's uh, compliments of you. Well, I, I wasn't going to bring that up, Dave, but, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, and at the time, I think you thought I was getting back at you 
uh, getting back to the Butler family, I should say, because my first day that I got to Stanford scrimmage against your brother, he tore open my uh, right above my eye and I had about seven stitches. So I apologize for that. But, I, you know, you've done pretty well even beyond that. So uh, it, did, no, it did leave a stain in your career. Right yeah, now. there you go. No, no stitches, no real marks. I mean, I think I got 37 stitches somewhere in my face to your point about basketball being a contact sport. But, you know, fortunately, the, the elbow from you wasn't one of those, uh, those stitches. So that's kind of nice. Well, good. Well, good. So, so tell me about, let's, let's jump to DFA. You guys have grown the business from, and I, I looked at the stat and I said, this can't be right, but 50 billion in assets in 2003 to uh, maybe you're near 700 now um, in terms of overall AUM. It, it's just one heck of a growth trajectory. How do you guys keep this going? And, uh, and what do you see as potential obstacles as the, as the CEO of the firm or co-CEO of the firm now? Yeah, you know, I'll go back real quick to your question about the aha moment. And for me, it was, you know, I was three or four years into my time in New York, didn't really enjoy what I was doing, didn't think I was making a great impact. Uh, and I thought I was just going to get out of the industry completely and go be a teacher and a high school coach in California. Uh, so I'd made the decision I was going to leave. Uh, and I was sitting there about a week before uh, Christmas break, I think, and I was looking at the Wall Street Journal, and there was an ad uh, in the paper, you know, 17th page, bottom right corner, three lines, and said, you know, money manager, Santa Monica, California. And I thought to myself, I like those three words, Santa Monica, California. So I, I sent a resume out and thinking that I was going to be in California anyway, my one last shot to stay in financial services before I went on to, to go teach. And I went out to, uh, to Dimensional's office. It turned out it was Dimensional. I went out to their office in Santa Monica, went up the 11th floor, got off the elevator. And, and this guy, Dan Wheeler, who you probably know the name, yep. Dan was the guy that started the financial advisor business at Dimensional and was an advisor himself, one of the first independent advisors, kind of one of the early pioneers. And he had gotten Dimensional to agree to allow his clients to use Dimensional funds, even though they were institutional funds in nature. Dan was there. He I got off the elevator, said hello. David Booth walked up. Uh, he had Merton Miller with him, who's a legend and a Nobel Prize winner. And David said, hey, would you mind, uh, to Dan, he said, would you mind taking Merton to lunch? I've got another appointment to go to. And so there I was in my first, um, for my first uh, interview with Dementia with Merton Miller, Nobel Prize winner. And he was talking about all these really simple capital market tenants, you know, markets work and risk and return are related. Uh, he used to say diversification is your buddy. And I remember walking away from that lunch and then having another conversation with Dan right after. And Dan talked about this investment advisor concept and how, you know, he and, and Dimensional, we're going to flip this thing on its head. We're going to make, you know, put the client first. We're going to have a great impact on clients and the way they invest and how their retirements are going to be. And we're in essence, we're going to change the way the investment experience happened in the U.S. And I remember walking away from that thinking to myself, wow, I, you know, what I just heard this capital market story from Dimensional and then this investment advisor story from Dan, I said, that's that's what I think can be really impactful uh, in this in this country where I can be impactful. And I, I literally started, you know, the next day. I mean, he offered me the job the, the following day. And I just, I liked the concept, had no idea what my compensation was going to be or what my role was going to be or my title or anything else. I just liked the mission. So I, I mentioned that just because I think with young people, sometimes they ask, how do you get here? Or how do you think about this? And I, and I always say, just just find something that you're passionate about, find something that you're excited about. And the the accolades and the money or the, or the titles, that'll all take care of itself. 
And so for me, that's that's kind of been my career here for 27 years, I guess, at Dimensional. You know, it's just been a, built around this mission. Uh, you know, I think we do the right thing. I think we do well for clients. I think we do all the things that I think beneficial for end investors, you know, diversification, keeping costs low, tax efficiency. And I think if you're clear about that and you're able to articulate that in a way that's that's compelling then to clients, then, then people are going to use those funds. So I, I think the growth of the firm really is built around that. It's just sort of a a good, honest look at how capital markets work. And then Dimensional adds this, this interesting implementation approach to a, what, what in essence is a kind of an efficient market type of a view. And we've built the business around around delivering, you know, on expectations, setting the expectations right and then delivering on that expectation. And clients have stuck with us for a long, long, long time. And we've got clients, as you know, that are right. working with Dimensional for 25 and 30 years. So um, I think that's the essence of the business, and it's uh, it's been the I guess the success of it. And you know, I think we're at about 650 billion. So that's been from 50 billion in, in 2003 to 650 billion today. It's been a pretty pretty significant growth curve. I, I started when we were at about nine and a half billion in '95, so I've been able to see the the entire you know growth of the firm in it. Well, a lot of those advisors like Dan Wheeler and uh, I've known several others. They're not only successful advisors, but some of the most, some of the fastest growing firms out there, which certainly has contributed, obviously, to your growth as they're bringing in new clients and helping them grow, and then using dimensional funds. Uh, your business is growing as as well, and and it's the other thing I would say, just in working with so many of those advisors over time, they're they're different in the sense of their level of passion around investing. Their discipline levels are different, and you know I know some people have said cult-like almost to the to to a point over the years, but it's definitely a different advisor, but a fast-growing one. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think I think you nailed it exactly. It's the, there's a, a discipline and there's a passion level, and I think it all starts with this client focus. So what I what I loved about the independent advisor space when I first got involved 25 years ago was, you know, there's a lot of folks that had stepped into it and said, you know. What I really want to do is I want to deliver, you know, great experiences to clients. And, and how do I do that? And a lot of them made the decision that being an independent allowed them to be a fiduciary to the client, allowed them to sit on the same side of the table as a client, you know, deliver the things that the client needed in that moment. Uh, and then I think the, you know, the, as you pointed out, the discipline, the passion around a, a well-articulated concept um, that, that can be interesting and engaging. And I, and I think that's the biggest hurdle for a lot of folks that don't uh, do it in this way is they, you know, we, I'll say we, the financial services industry has always felt that, you know, we got to tell a great story. We got to pitch something that's going to happen in the future. I'm going to look at my crystal ball. I'm going to make, you know, this prediction about where the markets are going to go or where uh, in, in interest rates are going to go, et cetera. And that's been the essence of value. That's been the, the I guess, the definition of advice uh, historically. And I think, like I said, what Dan and some of these early pioneers did is say, we're going to flip that on its head. You don't need to do all of that to have a really successful investment experience. And you can do it in a way, again, by being very tax efficient, um, cost efficient, diversified, and then, again, position your portfolio in certain parts of the market, i.e. like value and, and, and small caps, that have had historical returns that have been higher than the market itself. So, you know, what I've seen from the, the advisors who've grown really fast is a, a very laser focus on, on, to your point, on discipline, uh, 
Um, they're very serious about it. They are very serious about the client and about being working for the client, being on the right side of the table. And, and clients, over time, they recognize that. They, they see those expectations being met. And then they end up referring you know, their friends and colleagues to this, this trusted advisor. And I think that's why they've grown so well. They don't, they don't grow by advertising. They grow by referral in a lot of cases. And I think it's all built around this concept of trust. You know, how, do you, how do you build trust uh, in that business? And you build trust by being very competent, number one, and being trustworthy, which trustworthy just means that you, you meet expectations over and over and over again. And that becomes a trusted relationship. And I, I, I sometimes tell athletes, like it's, it's sort of the question that you and I would answer. If you're a coach and you want to put somebody on the floor, you know, how do you build up that trust to allow that player to get a lot of minutes on the floor? It's like, well, you put them out the first time and hopefully they don't make any fouls. Second time they they get a rebound and get a layup. Third time you let them shoot. You know, fourth time they shoot three or four times. Fifth times they're starting, and so there's this kind of this buildup of trust with the coach and the player. And I see it as, as the same thing here in the advice space. I think there's this trust that's built up from advisor from client to advisor, and those great advisors are the ones that have this massive amount of trust built up in their business and in their experience they've delivered to clients. So it's it's a um, slowly but methodically built business that uh, has, has been built around you know great experience from clients right one characteristic i also see with advisors using dimensional is they're just good communicators so that that has a lot to do with trust too i mean they're they they work well with their clients during up markets during down markets they're on the phone they're emailing they have newsletters what have you but they're transparent or very open about everything they're doing. And I see I see it quite a bit with advisors using dimensional. I don't know if that's something that you all do as part of your practice management support with your advisors. If there's anything around communication, if if there is, you're doing it pretty well. Oh yeah, that's great. That's great to hear because we do do communication workshops and we spend a lot of time on articulating the message. How do you do it in a clear, concise, transparent way? Um, you know, and that's, uh, that's probably one of the biggest challenges for every advisor, really. I mean, I remember one advisor saying to me that that he had, uh, uh, he didn't have people with investment problems. He had investments with people problems. <laughs> so, you know, that twist is pretty interesting because it's, you know, we, we all, and I include myself, and I'm sure you include yourself, behaviorally, you know, we all have a hunch. We all think something's going to happen. It's hard to, you know, remove the behavioral responses to the markets from your actual uh, portfolio. And, and I think, you know, the, the ones that, to your point, the ones that have been able to maintain a discipline, maintain a passion, ma- maintain an optimism and energy around how they do portfolio management and describe it to clients are the ones that have been able to keep clients in their seat right. uh, in good times and bad. So, you know, 0809 is a great example when we had a, you know, real tough, you know, market, the great financial crisis, you know, markets down 50%. And, you know, frankly, the advisors who were able to keep their clients disciplined and keep them in the market at that time, you know, came out of it, you know, 2010, 11, 12, and so forth with great returns and, and great outcomes for their clients. So a lot of it, again, comes down to the behavioral part. You can have great portfolios. And that's why we work with advisors. We, we think the dimensional portfolios are the best out there. Um, but if you don't have an advisor in there consulting, maintaining discipline, you know, you know, developing an allocation and so forth, you know, you can have the greatest product in the world, but it's not going to be able to be useful unless it's, exactly. you know, 
a consultant involved to actually make sure that that's used properly and and maintained over time, which is I think a big key. So one of our, one of the trends we've we're seeing in the industry right now is this movement towards outsourcing the investment management. Um, but having said that, I, I'd say there's probably seventy percent of our industry is still uh, advisor as portfolio manager still picking stocks, picking funds, mutual funds, what have you. And um, you've, you've been around advisors who have been active managers who then converted their business, converted their way of thinking towards passive, towards dimensional. What, what was, can you tell us a little bit about what's that epiphany moment look like with an advisor? And, and you know, I'm sure none of them or very few of them ever look back, but you saw that transformation. What does it look like? Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's it's we call it the aha moment, and, and we've all had it. Everybody that works here at Dimensional, you know, and it's that moment sometimes when you step back and you look at the data, and the data paints a picture that says, you know, it, it's really really tough to add value from stock picking or you know classic active management activity. And there's all kinds of data that you can look at. You know, the the data goes back to the 1960s on mutual fund performance and things that you know. Uh, but sometimes just the data in itself doesn't necessarily, you know, change the the mentality around around that view. A lot of it has to do with coordinating what is considered to be the value add of an advisor. And so there's a, always a hurdle. A lot of times people look at the data and go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, doing something that's index oriented, low cost, whatever, uh, makes sense for the client. But you know, then what's my value add? If I'm not picking stocks or if I'm not you know, making a, a decision about where the market's going to go. What what is my value add? And you know, it goes back to this this kind of discipline point, which is there's there's so many things that a wealth manager does that adds a lot of value to that client relationship. Starting with you know simple asset allocation questions and decisions. Part of it is you know is is then the discipline of staying in markets at certain times. You know, if value stocks, for instance, hadn't performed for two or three years, you know, do you have the discipline to stay with value? Uh, or if the market's down for a couple of years or if it's down 50% in 09, how do you stay in the market when everybody else is kind of being, is running for the door? So um, there's the discipline part, there's the investment part, but then now we're, we're starting to, you know, evolve into this kind of this holistic wealth management part, which says there's all kinds of things from a tax and estate planning and a you know, charitable giving perspective that advisor, you know, adds value uh, doing uh, and those things are are hugely beneficial to to clients. So we're now we're now at the stage where I think there's a there's a package or suite of of activities that advisors deliver to clients that I think are are significant and um, you know really important. And I think you know hopefully the advisors you know that that we work with get to the point where they say you know the investment side is is pretty tight and pretty well taken care of. And now I'm I'm going to work on some other things outside of the just the investment uh, part to make sure that the Again, the holistic experience for the for the client is a great one. Well, there it, it's 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 become a question about value they provide, but also at what price. And and the industry is coming under pressure, especially on the investment management side, with regard to pricing and fees. And the more an advisor can establish themselves in these other areas and add value, uh, the more this fee discussion is not going to come up with their clients. So I think I think that's another important thing. But it's funny. I oftentimes people say if you're at a dinner party, don't talk about politics. Well, it was a, I think several months ago I was at a dinner party and we weren't talking about politics, but we were talking about 
the pros and cons of passive investing versus active. Boy, that was just as heated a discussion as talking about politics. <laughs> I mean, pe- people get pretty into that. So, uh, and I, I know there it can be polarizing out there, but there's no question that advisors need to focus more on rounding out their business and delivering these other services. And something's got to give somewhere, and so that you have the time to focus on those things. And oftentimes, I think it's in the investment management side. Let's talk a little bit about the people that you've you've had in your company over the years. You know, Nobel Prize winners, very very smart people, people that you know that uh, would love to you know be able to spend time, sit down at dinner. Gene Fama, Myron Scholes. You mentioned David Booth. Uh, some others, Ken French. I mean. You know, as you spent time with these folks, what are some of the greatest learnings you took away from your conversations with these, these, you know, some pioneers in our industry? Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the greatest uh, parts of my job is just being around these super, super smart, super experienced people that um, that literally every day um, teach you something. Um, so it goes all the way back to my conversation with Merton Miller and having Merton, you know, give me that aha moment about how markets work. And why they work that way, and and how how things are how, how things happen in the capital markets, and that then that's extended through all of these uh, these players. And, and the one you know kind of a set of traits that I think with all of them is they're they're obviously very very smart, uh, but they're super modest, uh, and they're they're always in what I'll call the pursuit of truth. So they they're always looking at you know the kind of the road less traveled, trying to say, hey, what's a better way to do this? How can we do this a little better? What are we seeing that maybe, what are we not seeing that everybody else is not seeing that we can see ourselves? So when you look back at, at that group of people, you know, they were the ones that, that started indexing in the 1970s. They, you know, started American National Bank and Wells Fargo. You know, David Booth was at Wells. Um, that was the first index fund. It was just, you know, this concept of, you know, if, if you can't uh, beat the markets, then why not buy the markets? You know, and that was a a concept that was that was way out in left field at the time, and now, as you know, we look at you know where flows are going in the industry, and it, you know it's the majority of it's going to to index funds over active actively managed funds. So it's and then you know with Dimensional when we started in 1981, it was this idea of you know call it smart beta or multi-factor. It was the first smart beta fund was the Dimensional 910 fund, which was the microcap fund that targeted small cap stocks. And that was David Booth saying, you know, a lot of these these big institutions had large cap exposure, but they don't have any small cap exposure. So, you know, Dimensional launched this small cap fund in 1981, now has a 41-year track record on it, a 41-year track record of smart beta, multi-factor investing. And so these guys have been kind of the pioneers all the way through um, all of the things that we talk about in the investment space. And it's all been built around innovation. I mean, these the, you know, the index idea of indexing was innovative. The idea of, you know, small cap stocks was as a fund was innovative. The idea of, you know, value stocks in 90 in the early 90s with FOM and French research innovative. You just mentioned the the ETFs that we just launched. You know, we're we're launching those as as active ETFs. And so there's not a whole lot of money in active ETFs, a whole lot of money in index ETFs. But Dimensional's built, you know, a 40-year business on differentiating our our return and our offer from from index funds, basically. And so drill down into that a little bit for me, Dave. When you say active ETFs, uh, explain that a little bit for our listeners. And then then also a question, are those available to advisors? To, I mean, I, there's uh, their correct. ETFs yeah. so that are available we, uh, to anybody. You know, we had a lot of conversations with advisors and, and advisors for years, for 
you know, five to 10 years have always said, hey, why don't you think about an ETF? Um, and we didn't really think we could add value um, above and beyond a, a, a standard index ETF. And then in the, in, I think it was September of 2019, the ETF rule came out uh, that allowed for customized baskets um, and a way to manage an ETF in a, in a way that would allow us to do our value add from an implementation perspective. So whatever we did in the mutual fund side for four years, we're now able to do it on the ETF side. So we were able to differentiate in that market uh, within the ETF uh, uh, framework, just as we did in the mutual fund market where we differentiate what we do versus a standard index fund. And so our business has always been built around that value add. You know, how do we add value from implementation, starting with a, you know, kind of a view that, that markets work, we want to hold every security but we use price and we use uh, flexibility and we use implementation as a way to add value above and beyond a standard index. And that's, that's basically why we have a business. And that's the story that I think advisors have kind of glommed on to through the years is, is the story that we're not just kind of giving it away to an index because an index is not going to be uh, as efficient in terms of capturing all the returns available uh, in the market. But by being flexible and being, you know, having great implementation, we're able to add value above and beyond. So that, that's a story that now we we could we have in, in the ETF side as well. So we jumped into uh, late last year after putting about a year in at work into getting those those uh, ETFs uh, registered and so forth. And it's been great. And, and it's really built for advisors because advisors want more specialization. They want more customization and they want the they want the dimensional approach in in different wrappers that um, that are out there. So they wanted an ETF wrapper, they wanted a mutual fund wrapper. You know, we're launching a, a separate account platform that's gonna be very interesting as well. So all three of those areas are Dimensional's investment philosophy, Dimensional's implementation approach in a wrapper that fits for a particular advisor when they're working with a particular client. So and I probably should know this, but what additional tax advantages of any does does that offer uh, an advisor and their clients by using well, there's a lot ETFs of different versus why people the, the funds. Use it. You know, depending on the platform, there might be cost differences in terms of transaction of ETF versus funds. Uh, you know, there's an ability to obviously wash out capital gains more effectively in an ETF format. Um, so there's some things that um, you know our our funds are our tax managed funds were very very effective and on par with ETFs uh, that were out there as, as index ETFs. But we think we we've now positioned ourselves so that we actually right. can do what we do in the, in the dividend side, but we can also do some better things in the capital gain side. So again, we, we think it's a, it's a, it's a approach that I think is, is better than what's out there. Um, so we're excited about the fact that these, uh, that these uh, ETFs are available to, to advisors to work with their clients. Do you, do you think you'll continue to rotate towards ETFs and is there a, a time in the, in, in the future where, You'll no, I don't. I don't see that. Oh, migration again. I think it's more of a, you know, in everything in life, right? Where we have more flexibility, we have more channels on the TV. I mean, there's, there's an ability for us then to, because of transaction costs, because of various vehicles, we we we've been able to offer more than we used to. And, and I mentioned the separately managed accounts. You know, that's an area where, again, you know, you can you can be real flexible in a separately managed account. And because of cost efficiencies and technology and so forth, you can you can do those kind of accounts at smaller and smaller uh, asset levels, which make it very interesting again for advisors who are looking for ways to be creative in the tax side or the charitable giving side and so forth. So you, 
I could see a, a scenario in the future where a great advisor is going to have funds uh, in their client's portfolio. They could have ETFs. They could have separately managed accounts. And depending on the segment of the market that they're playing in, uh, they might use one or, or, or all three of them uh, on that uh, on that client situation. So again, it's a right. it's a flexibility play. Uh, gives gives advisors a lot of different options in terms of accessing the dimensional approach. And um, you know, I think it's uh, it's it's the it's the wave of the future for investment advice. Kind of, there's going to be going to be great optionality there for for advisors to to choose various vehicles to to basically execute on their client uh, client needs. Well, I mean, you're doing what every CEO of any firm needs to consider in this business and that's to adapt to the environment adapt to what's going on uh from an investor standpoint what they want invest and adapt to the the uh the generations that are going to invest in, in funds and etfs going forward you guys are doing that uh congratulations on all your success you've clearly done a wonderful job growing the firm i know you're not finished uh, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. One last <laughs> well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I've, fun. I've enjoyed seeing you. It's been, I don't know, probably been 10 years since I saw you last. So it was great seeing you, great catching up. And, um, you know, it's always fun. I mean, it goes back to the what we said, said earlier. As long as you are you feel you're on a good mission, you're, you're working hard at something, you know, I like the hard work. I like the energy. Uh, I like being associated with, uh, again, I think this whole independent advisor space is, is one that people – you know, people are doing the right thing. You know, we're all trying to do it a little bit better, get a little bit more efficient, and and that's a positive. So when you when you look at the industry when I started 25, 30 years ago, and the commissions and the cost and the lack of uh, you know flexibility and so forth, I mean, it was it was a whole different business than it is today. I mean, today you look around, and it's like it's you know it's it's a fiduciary approach with on independent advice and low cost and and tax efficiency and all the things that are real positives for clients are happening in a significant way. And, and, the, and the industry keeps moving that way. So I think we all have had a good impact on the end client outcome and the end client experience, which is, you know, again, why I, I joined the mission 27 years ago. And, and so it's been fun to watch that progression. And I think it's, um, you know, it's clearly it's taken hold and there's no, there's no turning back. You know, it's, it's about the client now. It's not about the, you know, the uh, the broker, let's say. Yeah, we can't lose sight of that. Well, thanks again, Dave. Uh, I'm glad to see your your nose is healed after all these years. Uh, that's that's good to see perfectly functioning. And uh, we really appreciate you having on the show, having been on the show. And uh, stay healthy and uh, good luck. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Uh, great, great, great with, uh, with catching up. And good and seeing you again. We'll see you. Hopefully, see you soon. All right, Dave. Thank you. And thank you for listening to my show today. You can subscribe to Can You Hold My Attention podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as through our LinkedIn page with the same name. Have a great day and stay safe.